The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast. I am Jack Mershon. I'm an application specialist for TestScan here in the United States. So I help to run our microscopes, sell them to support our users. Perfect. And Jack, before we get into what made you interested in science as a kid, how long have you been doing science? Did you start just as a kid doing science or did it, did you come late to the game? I after I got out of university, I took a job in electron microscopy lab and started writing automation software there in 1986. So, uh, so a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what made you interested in science as a kid, or did you know that you were interested in science as a kid? I think the reason I became interested in science is the space race. I was born at the end of 1960. And my parents tell a story of me dragging a very small rocking chair in front of the television to watch John Glenn go into space, distracting that ever since. Also, just the emergence of personal commuting in the 70s. Very good. Did you think you might want to be an, an astronaut one day or were you like, no, I want to be behind the scenes doing science? Actually, I was planning to fly for the Air Force, but I failed okay. my eye test. So that oh, didn't. no. <laughs> That's no good. What would be your dream job if you were doing anything today? Or are you doing your dream job? I think I'm doing a job I really like. I've been at it a long time. It's still interesting to me. It's still fun to do. It takes me all over the country. I get to see a lot of different things. But if I wasn't doing that, I would be making maps. I would love to be a cardiographer. Oh, I love it. That's something. Do you think that that's still a job or has that been overtaken by GPS and all of the electronic versions of mapping? Does Do cartographers still exist in the world or is that a retired profession? I would say this is a golden age of cartography. Oh, I like it. 
well, GPS is useless if you can't put your position on a map first. Good and, point. And I think it's just as relevant as it was over 2000 years ago. Nice. I like it. Well, and then you have to imagine all of the land that's covered by water that they're still uh, the Mariana Trench and the things that they're doing below water is just fascinating as well. So we are talking about problem solving today, Jack. What is the problem that we're solving today? From my perspective, the problem that I see a lot of our users have is ease of use. It's always been that way on older microscopes and even more. You know, what I, okay. what I tell people is uh, our customers don't want to buy a SEM, they need to buy a And they're not interested in being microscopists, they just want to use a tool. I call them casual users. Now, the casual user, are they offended by that term? Well, they shouldn't be. Oh, okay. Many, Good. many of our customers, their their primary mission is doing metallurgy or manufacturing chemistry. Or like I said, they don't want to put their sample in the SEM. They need. Gotcha. They wouldn't consider themselves a microscopist. They're a metallurgist that happens to use a microscope to do their job. It's just a tool that they have to use their job to do their job. Absolutely, and these people probably aren't using the SEM several hours. You know, they might yeah. use it once a week. And sure. You know, if you use your computer one time a week, you may not remember how all the buttons work. Oh, for sure. So it's the same with microscope and EDS. So I think casual user, I think, is a very neutral term, but descriptive. Yeah. Like, that's a good way to think about it because the casual user is not the person that's using the microscope for hours a day. That was very interesting. When I meet microscopists, I, they are not the casual user, obviously. They are sitting at the microscope for hours. They go in in the morning. They check their samples. They work on the microscope all day. When they leave, their microscope is still finishing up work for them. Absolutely. On the other hand, they probably support casual users. And oh, I'm sure. So they want to make it easier for those guys to get their own data and get it effectively and not break the SEM. Right. Themselves. I think that the microscopist feels like that's their equipment. That's their SEM. I feel like they're almost a step away from naming it. You know, like some people name their cars. That's my baby. <laughs> yes. And I love that enthusiasm for people's work, people that have that enthusiasm and that dedication to what they're working on is very interesting to have conversations with them. And then what is the history of the ease of use? We don't have to go back to the very first microscopes, but kind of in your history, when you were doing grad school and things, how have things gotten easier since, you know, back in the day? 
I think there are a lot of different issues that encompass ease of use, but I'll give you an example of one. And that's really making sure that all the parts of your microscope and your sample don't touch each other when you don't want them. So back in the day, when you closed the door of the salmon, you were blind. You didn't know uh, what was there or where it was. In the 90s, we started adding infrared cameras to chambers, and that made a huge difference. So I doubt there's a SEM today that doesn't have one. But that's still not good enough. So, you know, back in the 80s, you would put everything in and very carefully close the door. Maybe you'd even take a port cover off to see where things ended up once you closed. And then you didn't really move any more than you had to move. So that was very constraining and you worried a lot about crashing. What would you, what were some of the tricks that people did? Just peeking in was, were you able to get a sight on your samples or did you just run it? And if your sample results came back blurry or not accurate to your thinking, you'd have to run it again and just hope it went better the second time. Well, people would just hope that they didn't bump into something or they'd find out when an alarm went off or they found out they bent a piece of metal that they did touch something. Okay. That was very unfortunate. A lot of parts got broken. Yeah, which is very costly to some experiments and very time-consuming for the user, I'm sure. How are we approaching this problem now? So at TestScan, in our current instruments, we developed a 3D collision model. So this collision model is a CAD rendering of the inside of the chamber that you can move around dynamically. So you can grab it and tilt it and rotate it. And it's live. So every time you move part of the SEM, like the stage, that part moves in the model. So everything that's motorized in the SEM, you can see in and out detectors in the stage manipulators. And it's very useful, especially when you have more sophisticated SEMs with more of those devices. And you know, typically, you, you need to get them very close to your sample to start with. So when you combine that with the view from the infrared cameras, it's very funny. So we, Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking we were talking earlier, you and I, before we recorded about when you start adding detectors, this allows you to view where your detector is, your sample is, and make sure that everything is aligned before you even start running your samples. Absolutely. So. It's, it's actually automatic, so the, the SEM knows where all of its parts are. And if you try and move the stage so that your sample wants to be in the same place as part of the SEM, it will stop you, it'll give you an alarm, and it'll show all those parts that are going to fly in red in the, the rendering. Does it, Jack, it sounds like it works kind of like the backup camera on my car a little That's, bit. So the backup camera analogy is a great one. That is really great. I'll be using that with our customers. <laughs> it's something people are familiar with. <laughs> Absolutely. But everybody that looks at this, they already understand the need. They understand yeah. the need that they don't want to accidentally bump something. It's very expensive. Sure. So what makes this 
approach work? If have you or TestScan tried different versions of this and kind of landed on this, or is it still in the process of evolving? Do you think it's going to be changing in the future? To well, it's still being improved, but it's very good as it is. The key is that it's dynamic. So every time something moves physically, it moves in the model. And you can actually put the, the rendering right next to the infrared TV camera view and you can see the moving and synchronous. What advancements do you think are on the horizon with this technology? Will it be, I'm trying to imagine my, my backup camera already sees and gives me a view of where I'm going. It gives me a trajectory of where I'm headed if I keep going that same way. I imagine for cars, it will eventually stop me from hitting the trash can that I'm backing into. It sounds like with the samples in the microscope that it will stop you from from creating a collision. What do you think the next step will be in what's coming up for the future if you looked into the crystal ball 10, five, 10 years from now, what do you think it'll do? Well, the next step is something we're doing now, actually. So we're good at modeling the parts that we own, which is parts of the SEM, and the user provides information on parts the samples. The problem is the SEM doesn't necessarily know much about third-party equipment that's installed in the SEM, like an EDS detector, EDS camera substages, manipulators, and so on. So to solve that, what we're doing is modeling each of those components from Brooker. And then that's been actually been done in simple form. But the key is to collaborate so that we can talk to the Brooker analyzer. And in real time, the user moves the EBS detector into the insertion position. We can move that in the render and then account for that. I gotcha. So in, in my car backing up analogy, it would be the next step is telling my trash can to move out of the way because my car needs to come through. Something like that. So, you know, again, in a sophisticated system, you could have an EBS detector, an EBSD camera that may be in different positions, a substage that's doing nano indenting. And they all have large physical projections, so they're sticking out. And then you're tilting the stage, so those things may be going into part of the space in the chamber that you're not expecting that to. So I think that's that's going to be very new and unique as an idea. I like it. Now, I think you probably have this on your test scan page for listeners to get more information. It's called the 3D Collision. 3D Collision Model. Yes. Okay. 3D collision model. I'll make sure to have that information on our notes for the podcast, but I don't want to let you go without digging in a little further into your history. We had such a fun talk earlier uh, off mic about some of the technologies that have gotten smaller and smaller. You were telling, if you would share the story of how you used to have to go and get memory for your well, work. We, I started doing development of particle analysis in the mid 80s. And I went to a partner laboratory and I had to 
borrow a hard disk to run on the X-ray analyzer. And that hard disk was already old in 1986. It stored 10 megabytes of data, and it weighed 70 pounds. I had to take it out of the lab and go across town with it. And that was, just, that was just to borrow it, right? You had to return it? Yeah, oh, yes. I had to return it, put it back <laughs> in, make it work. <laughs> so people that were scurrying around the trade show floor at microscopy and microanalysis this week were carrying that on their arm, on their wrist, and didn't even give it a second thought. Do you think yes. that microscopes will continue to get smaller, or do you think they'll get bigger to do things faster? I think that there will be different kinds of microscopes in the future. So there will be small ones, medium-sized, and big ones. Mm -hmm. You know, regarding storage, when it comes to picture taking, I always tell people that pixels are cheap, which means take a lot of pictures. You don't have to show them to anybody. That one pixel may really help. Excellent. That's a good reminder. And uh, anything else that you have, any bits of wisdom from Jack Marchand that we can glean from our conversation before I let you go? I hate to let you go because I'm sure that you are a fount of knowledge and I appreciate your time. Well, I think people never take enough pictures with their minds. So that, that's why I tell people that pixels are cheap, which means you should acquire many of them. And I tell them it's like a UFO. Call me and say, Jack, I saw a UFO. I'll say, did you get a picture of it? Say, oh, no, I didn't. And I'll say, oh, that's too bad. But if you did get a picture of it, then you know you can make some money. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. What is the next thing that Jack is working on? Do you have a next thing or is it always something? I'm just concentrating on working with the next customer and, and helping the last day. People always have new issues and new questions and just go and try and answer. Very good. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Now, before I let you go, Jack, I just wanted to double check. Is the 3D collision model, is that on SEM and TEM or is it just SEM? I don't know. That's a great question. So our 3D collision model is on all of our products. So we have several different kinds of SEM conventional field emission, as well as focused IMB stations. So the same code user interface runs on each of those products. So currently, TestScan sells various SEMs and focused IMB workstations. About 100 days with the agencies. I was telling someone the other day, I, I remember touring a, a military lab 15 years ago, and a young person was running a FIB and crashed their sample into the backscatter detector and oh, just, no. <clears throat> just was beside themselves with grief. They had their head on their arm. They figured their military career had just ended. Yeah. So, so really, you know, it's the idea of ease of use and it doesn't affect, you know, how good a picture you take with your SEM or how good a picture that SM is capable of taking but it mm -hmm. just lets you work with some more effectively and more safely. Now, for that instance, when they crashed into the detector in that 
circumstance does the detector have to get repaired? Is it just something that gets replaced? Or is it a is it like with my car analogy, is it a bumper gets popped back out or is it a complete loss of a bumper? So when you have real collisions, it could be any of the above. But if you okay. take example, for example, backscatter detectors, it usually means you're replacing the actual detector. And that starts at several thousand dollars for the device, yeah. a few thousand dollars for a visit to service. Okay, so definitely saving you a lot of money and stress. Just like you, Jack, it's very interesting to sit down and have a conversation with you because you are a microscopist. That's kind of what it feels like, perhaps not to you, that you eat, breathe, and sleep microscopy. Well, I try to have a balanced life, but I sometimes I joke that at this point in my life, I only have one skill, but some people still need that skill. So I, I still have a good job. Very good. Well, I do appreciate your time. Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at bruker.com. You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.